Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. Please note, this podcast is a little racy in spots. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. This is Michael Tolkien, and I'm going to be reading from The Return of the Player, my new book. It's my fourth novel. Those of you who know the story of Griffin Mill from the movie, uh, which uh, I wrote and which Robert Altman directed, should know that this book is really a sequel to the first novel, which was the basis for the movie, and not a continuation of the film. Um, And having said that, um, I, people sometimes ask me why I came back to the character, and the answer is he was 52 and in a panic. And I'll start the book and you'll hear about the panic. Griffin Mill was broke. He was down to his last $6 million. No one knew he was ruined. Not Lisa, his wife, not June, his first wife, not even his lawyer. But the $3 million in investments that he made in the late 1990s, on the advice of his business manager, convinced of a permanent new economy, charged by an expansion of wealth made possible by technology, having reached $22 million in February of 2001, were now barely doubled. And what might have been $25 million, if the studio stock had once again reached $80, and he could have exercised his option for a half million shares at $30, was now gone forever, because the parent company had made a stupid merger. Box office was down. It would never return. And the stock hadn't seen better than $17 in five years. He owed June and their two children, Ethan and Jessa, $300,000 a year out of his salary of $1.5 million before taxes. But Since his income after taxes was barely $750,000 a year, that left him only $450,000 to spend after the alimony. He paid two mortgages. If he sold his house with Lisa, he might clear a million. But where would they go? The distress of his situation made him impotent, and he was allergic to Viagra. It was Griffin's impotence and depression that had sent Lisa to a divorce lawyer who asked her to secretly make copies of Griffin's financial statements. Griffin, who loved his second wife and believed in the strength of their marriage much as he once believed in the value of Global Crossing, high of $61, low of zero, had never established a way of hiding his assets, and his prenuptial agreement with Lisa was generous— So it was a shock to her when the lawyer wrote some numbers on a piece of paper and showed her how she could not afford a divorce, since her share of the stock would be less than $5 million, which, invested at what the lawyer suggested should be a conservative 3%, would generate about $150,000 a year. She might win more stock after a lawsuit, but even with $300,000 before taxes, she would bump around and coach collect her own bags, and never again enjoy Christmas and Maui in a suite that cost $1,000 a day. The lawyer advised her to stay with Griffin until he beat her. Do you think he will? she asked. Shit happens, said the lawyer. 
an expression of resignation so infinitely repulsive to Lisa that in the rebound from the meeting she located some pity for her husband, who in secret carried his financial ruin at the cost of his cock. If he converted his job into sound, Griffin heard nothing but a drone, an almost white noise, and against one's expectation that such a terrible buzz would leave him drained of the creative intelligence necessary for deciding which films to make, the almost white noise sustained a fantasy of the muffled engines and a rush of air outside a company jet, and within the jet, Griffin could live forever, immune to bad luck. Having worked for 25 years at this game, for a while even running his own small film company, until the backers decided that municipal bonds would make them more money, his was the business of relationships, and he supervised, no, he supported the harder work of six producers who worked exclusively with the studio. The producers, given millions by the studio, bought books and paid for scripts, and then tried to develop them into movies. Griffin read the scripts himself, but assistants with degrees from the best universities in America also read the scripts and compiled the notes. No one could call him lazy. He did read the scripts, and he did have his suggestions, but every change he advised came from the inner voice that first spoke to him about six months into his service, when he understood how to anticipate the notes from Stella Ball, president of production, who did have the power to say, Yes, we will spend a hundred million dollars on this picture. Congratulations. Stella was five years younger than Griffin, but she understood two things better than he did, the movie business and the taste of the audience. Lisa, trying to make Griffin feel good about his role as a messenger, told him that he was a midwife. He saw himself as the eunuch referee at an orgy. Griffin rotated a special vocabulary through his notes, a practice that began in fear when he started at the company and wanted to make certain that he sounded like a man with a vision. And over the years, the producers, who at first mocked Griffin's jargon, soon respected what he said, and, in advance of Griffin's notes, would guide the writers toward the goal of meeting them. A memo from Griffin always included, depending on his mood, such words or phrases as objectives, decisions, code of behavior, abstract objects, sub-goals, jeopardy, call to the quest, first confrontation with the mentor, resurrection, the return, and the second return. Not that his notes really mattered to the producers Griffin sent them to, since his six producers also had staffs of genius readers, and then the directors and stars whom those producers hired or wanted to hire paid their own sacerdotal councils to prepare their own notes. None of this should imply that Griffin slid through the day. No, his movies made money, so he was doing what he was hired for. But he had learned from Stella to give up his own taste and keep before him the memory of every test screening and the subsequent grosses of every film he'd seen, and to surrender to the audience, admit that the audience knew what it wanted, and his hard job was to help put old wine in a new bottle. He consoled himself with the example of Eric Clapton, a brilliant musician who might have been as difficult for the masses as Bob Dylan or Hendrix if he'd lived, but Clapton pursued the middle way, let someone else take a film to Sundance. If the director was good, Griffin would offer her a commercial script, no loose ends, no irony, clean justice for all, and teach her the secret of how to keep working until the choice to leave is yours. 
Over the years with Stella, Griffin understood that Stella's prime objective was to keep her amazing job and that her milk bath of purification, her substitute imperative, her third and successful attempt at killing the monster, and finally, personal will, the most important weapon in a hero's arsenal. All the stages and character attributes to bring forward the victory Griffin wrote about in his notes were true and enduring in his boss's life. What was theory to Griffin was religion to Stella Ball. But Stella would not keep her job forever because that's the way the cookie crumbles, and Griffin wanted it more than that. He wanted the crown privilege of the job, a seat on the board of the parent company with a view of all its divisions, and with that view, serious money. For Griffin wasn't afraid the world was coming to an end. No, he was in a panic because he knew the world was already ten years dead and the future was just necrosis. All around him, Griffin saw the blood pooling as it settled after the heart had stopped, and he wanted his own private island and no metaphor of an island. He wanted an atoll in the Pacific, in Tonga or Fiji, 40 acres with good soil, and to have that private island, he needed to be very, very rich. Before the crash, he had most of the money he needed, but the lying, shithead Stanford brainiacs in Silicon Valley, and the lying, shyster Texas Republican Goyim shitheads of Enrod, and their lying, shyster Jew allies, and the lying, shithead rabbis of the Houston Holocaust Museum, who let the Enron shitheads, Goy and Jew together, put their staining names on the museum's dedication wall to wash their names and the not lying but still fucking culpable, fucking gullible shithead who told him not to sell Lucent and Global Crossing because Warren Buffett never sells but skipped the lecture about how Warren Buffett never buys overpriced shit on the recommendation of carnival shills had left him with only enough cash to charter a helicopter out of the city when the starving hordes turned Los Angeles into a lifeboat, 11 days at sea, minus food or fresh water, and to what armed skinhead haven in the Sierra foothills could that helicopter lift him without an invitation? Taking an inventory, making a list of what his own bad faith had cost him, he surrendered his hatred of the shitheads, except for the senior managers who dumped their stock when they read the auditor's secret reports. He would not achieve the serenity of wealth until he accepted responsibility for the sin of losing his money, because he had felt the market's weakness but for dim, greedy, or stupid reasons allowed his business manager to have the final word when... Three months before the collapse, as his secretary touted Nortel, Griffin felt the tremors of a crash inside the shelter made from all his pretty stock certificates and watched it fall and stood there. And there were things he'd done he didn't want to think about because he saw no way to ever make amends since confession would be his ruin even the end of his life. And how then could he help his children? Can the hero have a secret? Achilles had his heel. A vulnerable hero is a sympathetic hero, so when he battles the adversary, he is weak, and the contest is in ritual doubt. Griffin knew his wound didn't qualify, because it came not from battle, but self-infliction. And was it really a wound or just a secret? There's always that thing, the dragon in my rearview mirror. 
I'm not a Jew, but I need a rabbi, thought Griffin. Everyone here is a Jew, and look at them. They know something that I don't, how to live with guilt. And they talk to God. I need to talk to God. No, God knows already. God knows the truth. Why take up God's time with what God already knows? Setting aside the horror of his moral inventory and rejecting the pornographic luxury of his dread about the future, Griffin told his secretary, her nest egg emptied by Nortel, to hold all calls. There are men and women at the highest level of the parent company above the motion picture division who would love me if they knew me, but they see me, however well paid, as Stella's nicely groomed left hand with no one on her right. Stella knows enough to keep me away from that table because she knows I would make a good impression on the people she reports to and that, delicately and discreetly, a few careful weeks later, someone from that table would call me at home one night and ask me for my honest opinion of Stella, not for what I said, but how I said what I didn't say. And I would reply... I can't tell you how much I've learned from her, what's smart about her, and I think what makes her so valuable to the company is that she's not trying to hit a home run all the time. She gets up to bat and knocks out singles and doubles almost every time. I'd say she knows how to consistently hit doubles better than anyone else in the game. But the parent company doesn't want doubles. It wants big, burly, bases-loaded triples and homers. It wants triumph more than measured success because this is fucking show business and the company wants the show. And this is what scared Griffin about such a call because Stella was younger than he was and good at an impossibly hard job and everyone in town still made fun of her Maybe because she was a woman, though mostly because she was a pathological liar. But setting that one aside, on the shelf where he dropped his fearless moral inventory, since at least half the people judging her were demonic sociopaths themselves, aides to Beelzebub, and lying when they called her a liar, Griffin worried that, if given the chance to make the big decisions, he would strike out. So, having no faith, but knowing enough that to pray without belief in an answer marks the first step toward redemption, Griffin prayed. Dear God, I don't know what I'm doing here with my elbows on my knees and my face in my hands staring at the carpet, and I know I'm pretending that I don't believe you're there so you'll be fooled into thinking that my efforts to talk to you when I think you're just a fairy tale should be rewarded ahead of the prayers of the holy saints who feed the poor and fight for the widows and orphans. And I know you probably can't be fooled, which means I'm wasting your time, but since you, God, are infinite, what's a few minutes here? I'm confused, and I ask only for clarity. I'm agitated, and I ask only for distance from that agitation, since I can't expect to be free of it. You know the wrongs I have done, and considering my sins, what you've given me is so amazing that this gift should be listed in the register of miracles. 
In spite of my sins, you have rewarded me with three beautiful children and the ability to support my beautiful first wife, June, who doesn't yet have a career or a second husband. But of course, if she remarries, I'll still pay child support for my son, Ethan, and my daughter, Jessa. And also, you have given me the ability to support my beautiful second wife, Lisa, and our beautiful Willa. But dear God, I have a terrible feeling based on recent evidence that maybe you've started my punishment. So hear me, O Lord. If your judgment against me has begun, why do you have to punish my wives and children for my sins? Because if I fall, they will fall too. Can the merits of my grandparents and great-grandparents, who so far as I know were honest people, wash away some of the blood on my hands so it doesn't mess up my wives and children? Please, God, this has become a real prayer, and I ask you, God, to give me another chance. I ask you, God, to give me some strength when I meet scary people. I ask you, God, to give me clarity so that when an opportunity for something real in this town shows up, I can recognize that opportunity and grab that chance, God. Grab that chance and make it mine. And God, I promise that I will make great charity and be worthy in every way I can and do good as I understand it. What is done is done. I will be judged in the balance. I have not done my best. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit www.kqed.org slash writer's block, B-L-O-C-K. But don't slash writers. Buy our books. Thank you. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. KQED.